What will keep our church from becoming a mess? I'm sure you've all heard of churches, and I'm sure some of you have experienced it yourselves, where they've just become a people that squabble, that disagree, that come together on Sunday morning looking like a nice group of folks, but just beneath the level of the surface there is envy and distance, dislike, unforgiveness. There's issues that when you touch, you find out that you've touched a hot spot. This is an absolute tragedy when this happens. Few things are more inconsistent with the gospel than a church characterized by this behavior, and few things are as spiritually damaging to all involved as a church like this. Honestly, brothers and sisters, if you were to ask me what one of my biggest fears is as a pastor, my wife, and I think most of you know, I'm just not a fearful person by nature, but if you were to ask me what one of my biggest fears as a pastor is, it's this. It's that our church would, would degrade into divisiveness and, what would you say, ickiness? <laughs> and here's the deal. It can happen relatively easily. It can. So what can keep it from happening? What can we do so, so that we continue to be a city set on a hill, brightly testifying to the gospel of grace? What can we do so that, so that unbelievers continue to come here and say to me, as they have said, and say to you, as they have said, there is something different here? You've got something special and a little weird here, but not weird like I want to run away. It's just weird that you all actually care for one another. This is strange. And then we can take the opportunity to explain to them that it is nothing but the supernatural effect of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our text tells us what we need to do. And so I'd like you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you're new with us, you've come at a great time. We've just started a new series in the book of 1 Corinthians. And each week we're going to walk through a section of it and just see what God has to say to us through his word. 1 Corinthians is pretty early on in the New Testament. So if you open up your Bible about halfway through, you're going to see Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. And then you're going to get to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17 is our text for this morning. Let me just read it for you. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be night united in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos, or, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. 
For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the first exhortation in the book of Corinthians. Last week in 1 through 9, Paul opened with this tremendously warm and encouraging affirmation of God's grace to the Corinthian church. But now he sets down his cup of coffee, per se. If we were to imagine he and the Corinthians having a personal conversation. He sits down the cup of coffee, he looks across at them and he says, okay, we've got to talk through some things now. Number one, we've got to talk about how the gospel calls you to unity. Number two, we've got to talk about how worldly wisdom affects that unity. And number three, we've got to talk about how the gospel is central for unity. So that's where we're going. Read verse 10 with me again. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. This is fall off a log easy to understand. Some things that Paul writes, hard to understand. This, easy to understand. It's a call to unity. I appeal to you that you all agree. No divisions among you. United, same mind, same judgment. Okay. Scripture overwhelmingly testifies about just how much God cares about his people's unity. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Read that this morning. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John 13, 34, 35. Now, of course, this looks like something. So two chapters later, he prays for his disciples. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Love leads to unity, leads to evangelistic winsomeness. John 17, 20 and 21. Acts shows us the unity of the early church on display. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, Acts 4, 32. Paul's letters reinforce its importance. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and any sympathy, and by the way, the idea is to all of those things, the answer is yes, there's all those things. Then complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love and being in full accord and of one mind, Philippians 2, 1 through 3. So clearly unity is no small matter. Unity is ginormously important. But we need to clarify something. We really need to take just a second to clarify and say what we're not talking about. For one, unity doesn't mean uniformity. So it's not as though as Christians we all need to think the exact same thing about everything in life. Paul tells us in Romans 14, there's got to be room for Christians to differ on various matters pertaining to conscience and to remain unified. It's also not as though we're all alike in our giftings and abilities. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, there are diversities of giftings. 
So unity doesn't mean uniformity. Christ doesn't envision his church to be like the clone troopers in Star Wars, okay? Everybody all the same. Christ envisions something more like what we'd hope to find in a healthy military unit. Different roles, different ranks. But everyone's clear on the mission. Everyone plays a part in the accomplishment of the mission. Everyone accepts and appreciates and supports one another in the pursuit of that mission. So unity doesn't mean uniformity. And unity also isn't absolute. So here's what I mean. In other words, the call to unity isn't the only thing or the ultimate thing that we should prioritize. There are times when division is necessary. Historically, just... Think of the Protestant Reformation. That was necessary because the Church of Rome had departed from the gospel. Luther and his associates were not being schismatic. They were being faithful to the gospel. So there are times when division and separation are necessary. If a church lets go of primary gospel truth, say the inerrancy of Scripture. Inerrancy, big word, just means truthfulness of it. By the way, if you're, if you're missing out on the course seminar on the why, on why trust the Bible, you need to set your alarm clocks earlier, people. You need to get yourself here. It's incredible, okay? All right, add over. Uh, so, if a church lets go of the inerrancy of Scripture, or if a church lets go of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, or if a church lets go of primary gospel ethics, say, gives way to the lie of transgenderism, If these things take place, Scripture prioritizes faithfulness to the truth over so-called unity. Does that make sense? So, unity isn't absolute. Unity also isn't inconsistent with diverse theological distinctions. Just because we're here this morning and Trinity Presbyterian is up the road, that doesn't mean that we are disunified. Same is true for Church on the Rock. Church on the Rock is a charismatic church in St. Albans. Now, wisdom dictates that we do church differently. But all three pastors, Seth, Mike, myself, we recognize and we rejoice in our unity in the fundamentals of the faith. This is also true when it comes to theological differences just in our own congregation. So there are differences among us in the finer points of theology. But does that mean that we aren't unified? No. We can be unified and disagree on the details of when and how Jesus comes back. Well, I've said what unity isn't. Let me just say what it is. What is unity? I'd say it like this. Unity is agreement on the fundamentals of the faith. Jude tells us to contend once for all. I'm sorry, he says, contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. That there is a God in heaven. That he made the world and everything in it. We have rebelled against him and deserve his judgment. But in response to our sin, God sent his son Jesus. He sent him to obey in our place. He sent him to die on the cross in our place. And then he rose again. And then he grants forgiveness to all who repent and believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Further, that Jesus will come back. 
And all who refuse him will suffer everlasting punishment in hell. And all who trust him will have everlasting life in glory. This is the gospel. The good news. And it's actually the fundamental message of the Bible. Now let me just add that as a church, I do think you need agreement on more than just the fundamentals to have theological unity. For us, what we line out is, is line, or what we believe is, is lined out in our statement of faith. But this gospel is the most important and central truth that we confess. Every word in the Bible, every word in the Bible leads to this message or has implications that flow from this message. The whole Bible is somehow moving toward displaying or teasing out the implications of Jesus Christ and him crucified and your union by faith with him. So unity is theological. Unity is theological, but it's more than that. Unity is agreement on, well, let me say it like this. There is a practical unity. There is a real life. See it in the everyday. We're in this together. We're family and I love you unity. This is what many people have observed when they come into our church. And I can't tell you how thankful I am for this. This is very precious. And how does it come about? It comes about when everyone is committed to living their lives in step with the gospel. Most of you know this, but let me just remind you, the gospel isn't just something to be believed. It's something to be lived out. It's not just a message that saves. It's a message that transforms. And to the degree that brothers and sisters are serious about living in obedience with all that the gospel entails, that, that, friends, is the secret sauce to this beautiful unity. So unity is both theological and it's practical. It's theological, we agree on the gospel, and it's practical, we live in obedience to the gospel. And when those two things are there, it's Beautiful. It's like a band where all the musicians are in sync. Beautiful music. Tons of fun to listen to. Tons of fun to be a part of. But the Corinthians. This was not the case for them. The reason Paul exhorts them to unity is because they're not unified. And so let's just look at 11 and 12 and see worldly wisdom's effect on unity. 11 and 12. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. So Chloe's people, likely part of the Corinthian church, they inform Paul that all's not well. Hey, Paul, we have problems, right? Everybody's quarreling. Well, how are they quarreling? Well, they're becoming cliquish and they're divided over which teacher they're identified with. Some of, some of them are saying, I'm with Paul. 
And then you got others who are saying, to heck with Paul. Apollos is the bomb, and he's the guy you should listen to. And other guys are saying, to heck with Paul and Apollos. Cephas is where it's at. Cephas is the guy you should listen to. That's Peter. And so you got guys, girls, lining up behind different people. And be clear, the fault here is not with the teachers, okay? No teacher is teaching a false gospel. No teacher is trying to create a special band of followers. And we know that because Paul even tried to send Apollos to the Corinthians in chapter 16, something he wouldn't have done if Apollos was doing something wrong. So it's not the leader's fault. This is all the Corinthians doing. They are lining up behind particular teachers, snubbing their noses at whoever lines up behind somebody else. Now, why are they doing this? This honestly doesn't make sense. All these preachers preach the same Jesus. All these teachers recognize and respect each other's ministry. Where is this coming from? We get a hint of it in verse 17. Paul says Jesus commissioned him to preach the gospel not in words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. What they were doing was judging these teachers not by their faithfulness, but by their eloquence. Who's the most persuasive? Who's the most compelling? Who's the most gripping? Who's the most convincing? Who's the most entertaining? Who has the best illustrations? Who has the best applications? Who grips me and gets to my felt needs? So tie this to the idea I was just talking about. What are they doing? They're not living their lives in step with the gospel. They're evaluating teachers based on the wisdom of the world, not the wisdom of the word. And that's resulting in this Now one group that doesn't make sense here is those who say, I follow Christ. That doesn't really make sense in the list because, well, Number one, every Christian should say that, and, and Paul would say that, and Paul would want the Corinthians to say that, and so why is this group listed in this list of, of divisive thinking? I think the best explanation is this. Amidst the jockeying that was going on there, there was a reaction among some that was basically like, you know what? I see all this. I only follow Jesus. I don't care what any man says. I care about Christ, and I care about Christ alone. I think a modern equivalent might be a me, Jesus, and my Bible Christian. So there are some Christians who react against historic confessions of faith or react against a church statement of faith. They prefer to say, I have no creed but the Bible. And by the way, these folks don't tend to get along well with other Christians. Um, because they're pretty convinced that they've got the corner on the market and the whole rest of the church is deceived. So what, what, what happens? They're divisive, you see. That's, that's the problem. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. I'm of Christ. Okay. So what Paul does now is he takes them in hand and he begins to reorient them. So right now they're out of step with the gospel. 
the world's wisdom is influencing and determining their thinking more than the gospel's wisdom. And so he's going to steer them back to gospel centrality. And I just want you to reread 13 through 17. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized any else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, but the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So he just talked to them about how they're lining up over teachers and dividing over them. And verse 13 is a rebuke with three questions. Is Christ divided? They're dividing up over teachers. Of course not. Christ is not divided, so then don't divide over teachers. Was Paul crucified for you? They're lining up and declaring their allegiance to Paul. But they should be lining up and declaring their allegiance to Christ because it was not Paul who was crucified for them. It was Christ who was crucified for them. Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Of course you were baptized in the name of Paul. You were baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So why are you identifying more with a teacher than with your Trinitarian God? And 14 through 16 suggests that this was the thing actually going on in Corinth. Christians were congratulating themselves on who baptized them. And so Paul said, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. Why? so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Now, at this point, Paul remembers that he baptized a couple of more, the household of Stephanus, but beyond that, he doesn't recall because that's not his main mission. Now, I just want to pause for a second, and I want to tell you, Paul's not dismissing the importance of baptism here. Some of you might think that, but after all, Baptism is bound up in the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Baptism isn't unimportant. Baptism is wicked important. It's the outward symbol of what happened to you when you became a Christian. When you became a Christian, you died to your old self and you rose again to new life, life in Christ. You left behind your old life and your old allegiances and you became part of God's people. This is exactly what's pictured in baptism. Death, life, and it's the entrance right into the church. But as important as baptism is, it's not as important as the gospel. And it's not Paul's main mission. For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel. Paul's main mission is to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. He's not going to preach the gospel in such a way as to pander to their fleshly appetites for eloquence or winsomeness or gripping oratory ability. He's going to let the gospel itself do the work of convincing and convicting. And breaking down the pride of men, women, boys, and girls and creating repentance and faith. You see, Paul understood that the gospel really is the power and the wisdom of God. 
mankind, blinded by his sin, doesn't see it that way. But it is. And what the Corinthians were doing, hear me, what the Corinthians were doing was losing sight of this. The Corinthians were losing sight that the gospel is their defining reality. They were losing sight that the gospel is their foundation, that the gospel is their wisdom. The reason they were digressing into divisiveness and quarreling is because they were beginning to interpret their lives and live their lives through the lens of the world's wisdom instead of the lens of the gospel. And so here's what I want us to do. I want us to think about how we, Redeeming Grace Church, might be tempted to do this. In what ways might we be tempted to live our lives together based on the world's wisdom instead of the gospel's wisdom? Just think with me for just a second about a few things. Let's, let's think about identity. Corinthians were tying their identity to a secondary label rather than the gospel. Paul, Apollos, Cephas. So when they thought about each other, they didn't think we belong to each other because of Christ. They thought, well, I'm this, and you're that, and I belong to this guy, and you belong to that guy. And what they're doing is tying themselves and identifying themselves with an identity that is not their primary identity in Christ. And that creates problems. So what are identities that we might tie ourselves to other than the main thing? Well, how about vaxxer or anti-vaxxer? How about attachment parent or free-range parent? Or somewhere in between. How about blue-collar or white-collar? How about homeschooler or public-schooler? Dave Ramseyites, non-Dave Ramseyites. Working mom, stay-at-home mom. Single, married. Artsy, engineering. I couldn't come up with a word. Life of the party, reserved. Younger, older, cool, not so cool. There are all sorts of ways we're different. And that's okay. Part of the glory and wisdom of the gospel is that different people come together as one around the gospel. By the way, it's okay to reason and talk with each other about these things that I just mentioned. We, we actually want to help each other think about all aspects of life. So it's okay to say, argue your point of view on something that you believe passionately about. We don't want to become a church that says, well, let's just not talk about anything so we don't offend anybody. That's the spirit of this age, and it squelches things. doesn't create real relationships. That's the wisdom of the world, not the wisdom of the gospel that says we can talk and disagree and still love and be unified. 
But we also don't want to line ourselves up behind these secondary identities and begin to think of ourselves as more different from each other than we are the same. That's the I am of Paul, I am Apollos thing. But the gospel comes in and it says, yeah, we're different. I'm blue collar and you're white collar or I'm black and you're white. But there's more that unites us than separates us. Now, this is easier said than done. Do you know what it takes? It takes real pursuit of God. It takes real passion for God. Passion for Him above everything else. And so maybe, brothers and sisters, that's just what you might need to deal with this morning. Ask yourself honestly and look at your social media posts what do they reveal about what you think is actually most important and what defines you the most? Is it your politics? Is it your identity as a professional, as a mom? So this, has, this text has implications for how we think about our identity and to the degree we root our identity in the wisdom of the gospel instead of secondary things will remain unified. The wisdom of the world says we're defined by secondary things and therefore we don't have unity. The gospel says that's garbage. How about this? This text has implications for how we think about church ministry. In church ministry, we're tempted to live by man's wisdom. Man's wisdom says, you know what? In the name of unity, you should take out everything that might possibly be edgy or or hard, and you need to kind of lower everything to the most common denominator. You need to lower the bar of theological conviction. You need to lower the bar of Christian ethics. But that's the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of the gospel says that it is, in fact, our gospel convictions that preserve our unity. It is our commitment to the gospel and its implications that preserves us as a people. Dumbing down is the opposite of what we should do. How about this? How about how we think about conflict resolution? How does the world tell you to resolve conflict? <laughs> okay. All sorts of ways. First of all, it says ignore it, don't deal with it. The gospel says don't ignore it, deal with it. The world's wisdom says, okay, if you're going to deal with it, talk to somebody else about it. Don't talk to the person. The gospel says, no, don't talk to another person. Talk to the person. The world says, they don't understand you and they'll never get you, so forget about it. The gospel says, you've both been forgiven by the grace of God and have the Holy Spirit within you. So, go to the person, seek reconciliation, be forgiven and give forgiveness. The world says, give them payback, they deserve it. The gospel says, no, 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 no forgive. Can't you just see the practicality of how the gospel's wisdom, and when we put ourselves underneath it and say, I'm going to live in subjection to this, it creates unity. But if we live how we think we should live, man's wisdom, the wisdom of the world, we will just splinter. How about how we think about friendship? The world's wisdom says, befriend those who are, befriend those who are like you. Gospel's wisdom says, befriend all who call upon the name of Jesus. 
How about how we think about service? The world's wisdom says, serve where you're interested and where you feel satisfied. The gospel's wisdom says, serve where you're needed. We could go on and on and on, brothers and sisters. But do you see what I'm getting at? The need to not just believe the gospel, but to subject ourselves to the wisdom of the gospel. To put ourselves underneath the authority of the gospel. To be subject to the wisdom of the gospel. To obey it. To the degree we do this, we will remain unified. To the degree we abandon this and go our own way, we will fray, we will weaken, we will degrade. To our own harm and the detriment of Christ's mission and his glory. What will keep us from digressing into division, disunity, and disharmony? clinging to the gospel of Jesus Christ and saying, I'm going to live my life under the authority of this word. I'm going to let it, not my own thoughts, determine how I think and how I live and how I relate in all ways. May it be the case for us now and always. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask for you to be gracious to us. We ask for you to continue to move mightily among us and to continue to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace that you have purchased by the blood of your son on the cross. So we thank you and we praise you and we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.